0: post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today.
1: You're listening to Living Better in San Diego. I'm Vicki Pepper. As a former foster youth herself, Dr. Denisha Keating has devoted her life to helping foster children through higher education. She's written a memoir called From Foster to PhD, Letters from a Suitcase, and has a documentary coming out later this year. And she's here to tell us her story. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So Dr. Keating, Start by telling us about your background in the foster care system.
2: It's a big one. Um, It's a a lot. And I keep thinking about how to condense it sometimes because it's too much. But my mom actually grew up in the foster care system. And when we were growing up, there was a lot of conversations around foster care. Like, don't mess up, because if you mess up, they're going to get you. Referencing child protective services. So then, in around middle school, we were, I was still being homeschooled from uh, like preschool all the way up to freshman year. But it was around middle school time that we were having CPS visit quite frequently.
1: When you say weed, my do siblings, you mean... my
2: parents, my family, like, consistently. So there's 11 of us kids and at that point I think there was about 11 of us and my parents were not really there and when they were there it was not a great situation but CPS was coming in and saying you know you have to get these kids in school you can't have them home all day you can't have them raising each other because that's not great Mm -hmm. and it just was a delayed conversation each time. Mm -hmm. So then I enter into high school Because CPS said, like, if you're not enrolling them, we're taking them to foster homes. And my parents said, okay, fine. You know, they had split up at this point, but then it was still like, okay, let's get them into school. And it was March of my freshman year and the school year ended in June. So a very, Um. very short period of time to be like, hey go. And my high school counselor at the time heard just kind of how our life was. And instead of being supportive, he's just like, I'm not even going to waste my time on you. Because he believed that anyone who came from a rough life shouldn't be supported. That's just who he was. And then that's when CPS entered in my sophomore year and said, your parents aren't doing what they need to do. It's time to put you in a foster home. So there's a lot in the in middle of that, but uh, I aged out at 18. So I went in three days before my 16th birthday and then aged out at 18. And aging out, for anyone who might not know what that means, is that you either turn 18 or 21, and then the system closes your file and says you need to leave the system and the home you're in, and you lose all support at that point from adults who were... Actively in your case file actively putting you into like courtrooms or conversations or therapy you just like all of a sudden it's gone which feels like freedom but it also feels like you call someone and they're like you're not my problem anymore and you're Mm -hmm. on your own and I was still in my senior year it was so my birthday's in October. That's when I aged out and my CPS worker came to me and said, it's time for you to leave where you're living and you got to go today because you can't be here anymore because you are 18 and you can't be in the same place as someone under the age 18 in the same room. So we got to get you to leave. And I moved out that day and was instantly homeless while trying to figure out how to finish high school. And it's been crazy. And then I dealt with it again in 2015 when I took in five of my siblings. So I dealt with the foster care system again, doing guardianship this time around. Because um, it was they, they said either you put them in foster homes and then you try to get them someday, which could take a year to two years, or you do a different route and do something like guardianship to get them now and be able to support your siblings. And then you figure it out financially on the back end. So I did the guardianship route and then my youngest brother, who was 12 at the time, turned 18 in 2021. So I was in the system as an adult guardian for that period of time. How old
1: were you at that point?
2: When I took them in, I was 24. I had just gotten my own apartment too. (laughs) So it was crazy. So I I was actually homeless from 18 to 24. And I house hopped a lot um, and lived with like complete strangers to find like homes on Craigslist just to live there and be like, oh, this room's for rent for like a month. And I moved 33 times between 18 and 24, finally got my own apartment. And that's when I got the call to start picking up my siblings. And I picked up five of them.
1: That is amazing, because in basically yeah. two years, you had to get your life together. And, and I'm speaking yeah. just from like from the point that you were no longer experiencing homelessness. Yeah. Th- that two year period to get your life together enough to not only be able to support yourself, but five other human beings who are relying on you.
2: It was overnight and insane. And it was like when I looked back at 2015, I was like, (laughs) girl, you should not have made it at all. And I looked at my tax return and I, Every so often look at it again, just because it's a reality check of like where I was at financially. I had only made $18,000 that year, but because people surrounded us and said like, here's furniture, here's a gift card, here's cash, that actually helped push my bank account to $3,500 for the year, but I only actually brought in 18. So it was like, you shouldn't have made it on your own, but people came in and they, they said like, I want to help, what do you need? And they filled the needs, but it should not have happened that way at all. I, sh- I should have flopped pretty hard on my butt, <laughs> but I didn't because people supported me. But it was definitely like that rush to say, OK, now you have to finish your bachelor's. Now you have to finish your master's. Now you got to work like you got to do all of this at the same time while raising kids who are in their teenage years, which is so hard.
1: I've spoken to people before who focus on that transitional age in the foster care system. And I think you have just given us a beautiful example of why those programs are so needed and so necessary. Tell us about that period between (laughs) experiencing homelessness Mm -hmm. when you were 18 and still in high school and going through college and beyond.
2: Yeah, it's a lot because you, like I I process a lot of this because I'm like, (laughs) oh my gosh. But 18, you don't have your life figured out yet. And it doesn't matter if you have a supportive family or not at 18, you're still a child and you're still thinking mentally like a teenager where you're just like, oh, I'm going to go and do this and that. And you turn 18 and your whole world crashes before 18. And now at 18, you have to figure out how to be the adult that you've been being for the last couple years because your parents weren't which is common with foster youth is that they're usually like mentally if you talk with them they're very grown up and you're like wow you're you're very mature for your age (laughs) or someone who's experienced trauma or raising siblings and or helping with their parents illnesses it's you see that there's this maturity about them but it's not it's not a good maturity because it's a forced maturity and Mm -hmm. and it's one of those things that you kind of go, oh, you've had a hard life already, and you're Mm -hmm. 18. So fitting in with my friends didn't really happen. And a lot, I remember a lot of conversations my senior year of like, you're just trying to be the mom of the group. And I'm like, don't, this is just what I'm, I'm just like. That's all like, you know how to do. <laughs> I don't know anything else. And you go through this like everyone's trying to figure out their life and what college they're going to. And you don't say anything because you're sitting in the back of the room just like I got to get home to the kids. And you're basically mentally a single parent caring for your, your siblings. But you're not a parent at all. And there were a few adults in my life that were like, girl, you're this is not your responsibility. And I'm like, yes, it is, though, because that's how right. I was raised. It was your responsibility is to take care of these children. So going into 18 i was like i'm screwed because <laughs> <laughs> i got nothing here to be able to sustain myself so i got to get it together and at 19 i took like a year off from high school to college and was like okay i'm gonna go the community college route when i go but i worked in between that time and a lot of people i was working with i worked at a warehouse as a forklift driver like 19 year old kid 18 to 19 year old kid just being like cool This is what I have for my life. And a lot of people were pulling me aside and just saying like, you can go to college. I can't either because of finances or not being documented or even things like just not being able to give up their full-time job because it would hurt their family. So they're just like, you can do this now and just go. So I went to college and decided not to work full-time and I was going to work part-time in 2009, which was like when the economy crashed, right? (laughs) Uh. Worst decision of my life, Uh. but very good because I was able to start classes. They were, it was just that friction of understanding. Like when someone says I have part-time work for you, it doesn't always mean 30, 35, 40 hours a week. Sometimes that's two or three hours Mm. and you just kind of have to accept that. And when you've never worked a part-time job before, you don't know that that can happen. So financially, It was a wash. Like, I was not getting the hours I needed. I was going to school. Some jobs don't work around school schedules. So that was a challenge, trying to navigate that and figure that out. And I remember losing my apartment and being like, what am I going to do? And started living out of my car for, like, a year and then bouncing from friend's house to friend's house and then would meet classmates for, like, the first day of school and just be like, hey, we're going to do our homework together or... You know, being at Starbucks and a student's there, they're in college, you know, you've seen them around and you're like, hey, you know, they're like, hey, come over and do homework because Starbucks is closing. And then you just spend the night so that way you're not in your car. And then you move around so many times. And and from 18 to 24, I moved 33 times that I registered for with the P.O. box or with the, the U.S. mail. And it's like, hey, this is how many times I've moved. And then somebody's like, girl, get a P.O. box because man <laughs> right, <laughs> like you right. keep moving and uh, and your mail's getting lost and you're having to pick it up from like six different places and i was like well i'll get a po box and then i stopped tracking where i was living at that point so i've lived in so many different places and in that whole time you have shame and embarrassment and guilt because you're you see your friends are moving on and finishing school and you're you know 23 24 and you have no idea when you're going to finish your bachelor's program and you're like What's this life for me if if my accomplishments aren't going to happen, too? And you see people moving on and you think people have all these things figured out and together. And then you sit with someone in their 30s and 40s and they're like, stop stressing. Like, I still don't have it together. And you're (sighs) like, oh, cool. They're like, just get the bachelor's degree done. But it took me with all of the hoops I had to jump through with like being behind in community college, taking the wrong classes, because there wasn't a lot of advocacy there to say you need to sit with your counselor and talk with them. There's not a lot of availability Mm. to plan with a counselor for your classes. So you hope that the piece of paper you grabbed is updated. That's a lot different now. It's like mandatory to go sit with a counselor (laughs) versus like before it was like you could just fly under the radar without being seen. But I was like taking all these classes that didn't transfer and didn't matter And I finally got back on track, but it took me eight years to get my bachelor's done. And it was delayed even further when I took my siblings in because I started not doing great in class after I transferred to an online university. But it was chaos, and it felt like I was never going to complete this degree. But it was like, I have to work, and a lot of jobs require a bachelor's, so I'm going to kind of need this to open these other doors I can't get into that do pay better than working at, you know, a Del Taco or a restaurant or trying to figure it out by myself. And that was it was a lot.
1: I wanted to ask because I feel like it's so easy once you graduate from high school to make plans to go to college. And then especially if you're going to like a community college, it's so easy to to just drop a class here and drop a class there. And then I feel like it's challenging for someone who has a lot of support Mm. in their lives and you did not. Why were you so determined To get through this education process.
2: I get asked that and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know. But I'm like, (laughs) I think there's a lot that it is so easy to drop a class. But so many people tell you in high school that college, nobody cares that you're there. They don't care about attendance for professors or you can pass the class. It's so easy. It's a breeze. And then you get there and you're the one struggling the whole time. And that is super depressing because you're just like, wow, like, where did I go wrong that I can't retain this information or be cool like the other kids (laughs) to ditch class or have that one professor who's really taking attendance, which they all take attendance. Shocker, but they do. But it was one of those things that you kind of sit back and growing up in poverty and seeing some of my friends' parents not be in poverty, you're like, okay, they did something different because my whole life was poverty like not even being able to eat not being able to afford things like Christmas which it's like not a lot of people can but when you don't get anything for Christmas or a Christmas tree or clothes on your back because your parents said they can't afford it again it's just one of those things that you go but then how does so-and-so's parents afford it Mm -hmm. and then you see and ask questions and people go oh, well, dad had a degree, or my mom has a degree, or my mom or my dad do this, and that required college of some sort, if it's technical school, community college, or a, a bachelor's degree. And you go, oh, okay, they did something different than what my parents did. And then they learned how to manage money. Oh, well, okay, that's what's happening here. And a lot of people were like, well, your parents had 11 kids. And I'm like, no, my parents had 11 kids, and... There was one income coming in, the other parent didn't work, and there was horrible spending, and there was not a good paying job that they had. So it's the determination, I think, comes in of just kind of being tired of the same old, same old, and watching both sides of your parents' families being like, oh, this is just our life. This is all that we amount to. And then being you see their anxiety or their depression or that they're angry, that they're You know, they didn't get as much as somebody else did. But then you look outside and you're like, oh, they do have green grass. Ours is dying. We don't have water on. They do have water on. They have birthday parties. We never do. And you don't... Sometimes it, I think, clicks at a young age where you're like, I don't want this forever. And then I think sometimes in adult life, it can click to where you're like, I'm tired of the same thing happening over and over again. And I think that that's, for me, it happened twice. Mm -hmm. But there were always teachers or professors who came in and they're like hey i'm gonna tell you something people won't tell you a lot of people talk about the american dream and it's like well what is that to you and and every teacher i've ever had they go further and they're like the american dream is about making what you want possible possible and in reality we shouldn't be able to have a lot of the jobs we have here in america but we do because of how america is like it's just built that way and it doesn't make it easy though You know, you can't just wake up and be like, oh, I have this great idea. I'm going to go do it if you don't have the funding. And I think that's Mm -hmm. where I kind of saw college where it's like my family is generational poverty, like three, four, five generations back. On my dad's side, there's people who immigrated in like three generations up. And that's how we got our start here. So it's like okay, there are some people in that line who said, I'm going to do it differently. And they had the money, they had the nice house, they had happiness. Mm -hmm. And then you see the ones who didn't, where they're a lot of them are miserable. And you're just like, something's got to change here for it to be, it's not a, well, this is just where we're at. This is something that this is a choice now. And that I think kind of spurred as a child to be like, I want to be able to go buy milk and not ask the neighbor for it again. And then as an adult, like sitting with friends and them having steak dinners with their family or having a house and the electricity was on, you're like, okay, if I want this, I have to fight Mm. for this but it doesn't make it just like this easy thing to walk into, like some people make it sound. They're just like, oh, if you just want a business, go start it. And it's like, it's not that easy. Like (laughs) some people make it sound super easy to just go and like get it together. But I'm like, it took me eight years to get my bachelor's done. And I was repeatedly told like, well, you know a lot of people don't finish at this point, right? No one would be mad if you like just stopped. No one would think you're a failure if you just dropped out. There wasn't like, hey girl, you gotta get this done. It was always that other conversation. And you have a choice to be like, okay, I'm going to listen to you or I'm not. And that's kind of where I'm just like, just stop listening to people. But there was a professor in college who it was my first semester. I was completely failing the semester. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And he was an art teacher. And he just said, like, look, you have choices that you're going to make. You might not wake up happy in your with your life in 10 years, but if you make the choices that you'll be happy with in 10 years, you're going to wake up happy with those choices, and you might be miserable in life, but you're like, I'm still heading in that direction. Mm. And that just kind of like, okay, <laughs> I'm not happy with where I'm at, but they're, I'm le- doing the choices to get me where, where I'm going to go. But it, it's hard sometimes to sit back and just be like, yeah, I have to work harder for this while other people say that it's a lot easier for them. So it's, I think there's that, that spark that can happen at any time. I don't know what causes it. So I can't be like, hey, it's a magic juju. Just like wish it and it'll you'll have grit I have no idea what causes that spark to be like I'm done with this but I do think it. you get to that point with a lot of different things it could be like your weight journey or it could be with family where you're just like I'm done with this conversation I'm done with this behavior I'm done with this way of living I want something new and this other person over here has that I'm going to ask questions mm-hmm. I'm going to investigate to see what I can do differently and then it's making the choice to like okay now I'm going to do it either for myself or do it differently in a way that works.
1: What do you think were the biggest barriers in completing your education?
2: Oh, my gosh. It always comes down to money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I was homeless. That was really, really difficult because there was no consistent living, I think, That does come back down to the money issue—is not having a lot of opportunities and a lot of guidance on how to use money. It was always a conversation with my parents of like, "Oh, we'll teach you later. You don't need to know now." But then, like other people, didn't want to talk about money. People didn't want to talk. Like, still to this day, if you were like, "Hey, what's your salary?" People are like, "I can't disclose that." And you're Mm -hmm. like, "God, you could." But I get why it feels weird, but. A lot of people live in this where I know I for myself, too, it's like we go out and buy stuff that we really don't need to make it look like we're more successful or look like we're doing really well. But our bank account's like overdrawn. So for me, it's like I was always overdrawn and just like lived in that to where it's like, I hope my debit card goes through at the bank, you know, at the at the gas station today. But it was that financial strain where it's like okay I don't even know if I can afford the pencils that I need for class and then borrowing from friends because it was easier to be like hey can I borrow your pencil and then give it back to them versus like Mm. can I borrow five bucks to go get pencils for school and most of the time people are like yeah just keep the pencil I have a hundred and I'm like sweet because I got nothing (laughs) Um, but other barriers was was things like if my tire popped and I was stranded on the side of the road, and I let my, the, like my professor know. Sometimes the professor didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Within high school, some of the barriers was I didn't know I had dyslexia until probably the middle of my sophomore year. And so I didn't know why I was failing math so horribly or couldn't understand the concept of it. But there was no tutoring services available support from people is like not having sometimes you get the support and sometimes you get those horrible conversations of why you shouldn't go forward or why like my high school counselor would say like well if I was you I would just quit like you're a statistic why bother and I'm like what is wrong with you (laughs) but it you hear a lot of people talk about that where it's like they had some sort of teacher or parent or you know boyfriend's mom or dad or something like that or girlfriend's mom or dad where they're just like you're never going to make it and you're just like why are you so mean and that that is a huge barrier for just doing anything in general is people not believing in you and i don't really hear people say well yeah people believed in me and I just I just sucked (laughs) you know like I mean if you watch American Idol that's a whole different story where you're just like ooh, no one told you you were not good they told you you were good but most the time we hear that conversation of just like well I think you're not going to do it and it's usually based on that person's limited ability not our actual ability but it hurts us When we go into that. So it's like not having community can impact our success in anything. Not having the financial means to get a tire and have someone like your boss or a professor or a high school teacher be like, hey, you couldn't come to school today because your car tire went out. And they're like, oh, that's an excuse. It's like, no, it actually happens. You know, that's it's a real reality. If you don't have that communal support, you're not going to be able to succeed in that now it's not a hundred percent that you won't it'll just be a lot harder to move forward when you don't have people surrounding you and being like hey let's go get back up and come on <laughs> you know you got to do this for yourself not for somebody else
1: what do you think are the biggest barriers to education for foster kids
2: the biggest one would be family support there is not a lot of family support they come from rocky homes when it comes to foster care a lot of foster youth lose their family and then when they're you know 18 sometimes they're they have the opportunity to go back and talk to them but they're trying to repair those relationships but they might not get that support educationally because foster youth are getting moved around so much. There are some, if, if you know a foster youth and they're comfortable sharing, they'll tell you like, oh yeah, I moved eight times in high school. I moved 15 times from middle school to high school. So now their education is holed. There's holes in their education because of the fact that they were moved in the middle of the school year. There's no like, there's no right time to move a kid, but at the same time, it's like if we could keep them in their high school or their junior high or their elementary school where they're not being moved, then their education won't have as much of an impact on it so then they try to go to college and they're like why like that's it's kind of a running joke that I'll say as people are like, we learned this in the eighth grade and I'm like I did not (laughs) and my husband will say well we he said it the other day because we're the same age and he goes yeah we learned this in like eighth grade and he goes well you didn't learn and I'm like no and he knows that but it's like a joke now because it's just like but did I did I learn that (laughs) no uh and it used to make some people really uncomfortable but it's reality is that foster youth will have educational holes in their whole career of education because of the interruptions that happen with them being moved. And then they won't have the support from family or they build their community. Say that they're in a foster home for two years. That's two years of them building a community and then they get moved. And then it's like, hey, go make friends somewhere else and family wherever you go. And it's like, okay, now you're going to start getting wounded and be like, why am I going to get attached to people if I'm going to be moved again? And I know for myself, like I moved so many times that by the age of 28, I just stopped unpacking the boxes. Mm. I left things in suitcases. I left things in boxes. Mm. And I was just like, there's no point in unpacking. And then I got married and we moved in together and it was like, it's time to unpack because there's stability. And I was, it was hard being like, let me unpack these boxes. And there was years worth of stuff in these boxes. And I was like, oh, now it's worthy to unpack and that's not just like it's not an emotional metaphor it's like physical boxes and now it's like oh now now you have to unpack the emotions that come with that and you're in your 20s and 30s trying to figure that out as a foster, foster youth and and sometimes that is delayed where some foster youth don't get stable physically in a home until they're in their 30s, because there was no support before that. That's changing a lot in California, where there is a lot more support if they are in the school route. They go to college, there are tons of support programs out there. But for foster youth who are not choosing a school route, and they're trying to do it on their own, there's less support out there. But there are a ton of organizations But based off of labels of their case file, so if they were put as foster care, they get more support than if they were put guardianship as their file. So if a family member picked them up Mm. and said, okay, we're going to do a guardianship route where it's I'm going to be the guardian now, hopefully it's temporary, versus being put into a foster system. It's totally two different case file types, and the support's going to be very different from the beginning all the way to growing up. And California is trying to do a lot to fix that, but it sometimes doesn't feel fast enough <laughs> where you're like, "Hey, we have 120,000 young adults aging out of the system every year. Where do they go?" And you sit back and like first you get really like upset about it, and then you're like, "Oh, there are places and people trying to fix this." But you you realize there's a lot of holes and a, and it really comes down to simple things like finances and community. And those two things play into the emotional side. And those two things play into the academic side. Mm-hmm. So you can't say, hey, it's like a, there's a saying, I forget, I think it's by Einstein, but it's, you can't judge a fish and say like, hey, fish, go climb this tree real quick. <laughs> you can't say, well, you're not smart. It's a fish. He's supposed to swim. But you can't say, hey, I understand that you had no support emotionally or mentally or financially you also have a bunch of holes in your education. Go past college. Good mm-hmm. luck, sink or swim, and that's what you're told by every professor out there. Or oh, you're just going to either sink or swim. Half this class is going to leave anyway, and you're just like, thanks. But you when get, you like, have, yeah, and you have people you get run off. That. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, and usually, like, other people can look at you and be like, you're the problem. Foster care still has a, a weird, like, it's I don't know why people look at, at foster youth as teens and they go, well, you're the problem, and there's still that weird label that comes on it's like foster care never happened because of the foster youth it it's happened because there's something that happened in the family parents that crushed the dynamic of what should have happened and then foster care stepped in and now you say hey young adult because you don't have your life together or you're this or you're that they're labeled throughout this whole time and often behavior comes from that because no one's listening they're being moved all the time Everything is well, it's for your best interests. And you have this this young adult sitting there who might be 11, 12 years old, but mentally they're older and they're just like, you know what? Screw this. I don't care anymore. Mm. And then you are go survive at 18 and figure it out. Go survive at 21 and figure it out. So it's like it's not just like, well, we don't have enough resources. It's like it's it's deeper than that where it's there is no community. And then there's no real understanding, like, okay, you wanna to go to college? Absolutely, let's look at where the holes are so we can help improve those so you can be successful in college. Mm-hmm. Because I had holes in math and English. I was homeschooled to the middle of freshman year, but I wasn't actually homeschooled. It was just go figure it out by yourself. <sighs> I taught myself how to read through video, like audio tapes at nine, because my parents are like, we're not teaching you. And I'm like, okay. <gasps> but I had a horrible time reading Big words. I still do struggle with big words and sounds, but it's one of those things that other people stepped in and they were like, hey, we noticed this whole here's how you can work through this. And that helped me be successful. Like, I wouldn't have gotten a PhD if I didn't know how to read. But it's like, I still struggle with writing. Yeah. So I started learning how to do grammar and spelling so that way I could learn how to use words and dictionaries are my best friend. Google are, is my best friend because I'm just like, what does this word mean? And sometimes people are in conversation and I'm like, what?
1: <laughs> Where's my phone real quick? I'm like under the
2: table. Like, what does this word mean? And it's always spelled wrong, but I usually get to the word. and I'm like, oh, OK, but I'm delayed like 15 minutes in that conversation now. Just because that delay is there. But I've gotten, I think, more comfortable with it, where I'm just like, look, what does that mean? (laughs) Instead of feeling like I have to have that answer, but you can't expect anyone to be successful if you're like, here, you have all these holes going on and just figure it out yourself. So if we could fix supporting with community, supporting financially in any way that we can, and then helping figure out where the holes are academically, people will be able in regardless if it's foster care or not if we're able to figure out those three things for people in general we're able to help them thrive a lot better than they would without those three things
0: call from mom answer it call silenced instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game that's why they make ordering from your couch easy
1: I'm speaking with Dr. Denisha Keating, author of From Foster to PhD, Letters from a Suitcase. How are the current graduation rates from high school and college for foster youth?
2: Right now in the U.S., we're going to use U.S. statistics because they vary state by state. For high school, it's about a 50% graduation rate for foster youth to graduate from high school. But from college with a associates or a bachelor's, it is 3% of foster youth are graduating from college at this point. So it's very low. Um, And I think when they did, there was a few studies that I did with my research from my PhD program. I focused on best practices for foster youth at the community colleges here in California. Just asking, like, what do you guys do? And a lot of the literature that was out there was saying that former foster youth have a very big desire to go to college. And it was 85% of high school foster youth want to go to college. 47% of them finish the financial aid packet. We don't know why. My guess is reasons of family not supporting it, not being able to get documentation, losing hope to go to college. And then when you look at the rates, it's 3% are graduating. And it's with only with a bachelor's and an associate's. I believe they said a, with a master's with foster youth, it's less than 1% nationally at this point. And there is no known number if they go on to a doctoral program or like a medical degree.
1: How can the community change that?
2: There are so many ways. And I try to not always be like, hey, foster. But we need foster parents. Absolutely. We need more foster homes. That Right now we are, I think, across the U.S. I think they said that there is just under 300,000 homes, but there is like 390,000 needs that are still out there. So we have mm-hmm. very low foster home openings at this point. Not everyone is meant to foster, though. Not everyone is supposed to be or should be a foster parent. There's a lot of things that go into that. But there are so many needs for, like, having adoptive grandma and grandpas or just, like, mentors in the community who, if a a young adult who happened to go through foster care sits back and is like, man, I want to be a manager at a store, Being able to call someone who's a manager at a store and say, how can I go this route? What do I need? Do I need a bachelor's? Do I need experience? How do I get a job like that? But having a mentor who can say like, hey, you're on the right track or no, you're actually going off that track, but here's another person if you want to go that way. There are organizations that are out there that are working on ending, like trying to end homelessness with foster youth, trying to help give support programs to colleges or high schools or middle schools to help support foster youth academically so being able to say okay what do you need financially to make that happen what do you need volunteer wise to make that happen can we open our homes for Christmas and Thanksgiving and I know sometimes we're like well I don't want people to come into my family time and I'm like I get that but these young adults are needing family. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need community, and and I know a ton of people who they have brought random kids in. They don't ask about their background. They're not like, hey, tell me your story. They're just like, hey, you know, you're my son or my daughter's friend. Come on over, have dinner with us. It's that simple. That can make the world of a difference because I know for me in high school, that's a lot of parents did that, and that was the only meal that I would have that day because. Parents were just like, hey, come over and eat. And I'm like, oh, thank God, because I wasn't getting that at home. But then you have parents out there just being parents to everyone they meet. And it's just a game changer for that one who might not have that family stability at home if they're in foster care or not in foster care. It doesn't really matter because there's so many kids out there who don't have a stable home life that they just need someone to say, I see you and I want to know you and I want to care for you and I am a safe person versus someone who might not be a safe person trying to get that that young adult over to them, which is a reality because human trafficking is a big num- percentage among the foster care community or more future abuse because people will target a foster youth, unfortunately. So the community can be the protectors and just be like, not on my watch. Like you're not going to not have a meal. You are not going to have struggles of getting to and from school. The other big thing that could help is helping the families, because sometimes it's not about the physical abuse that a child is taken away. It's the neglect of like they don't have a babysitter. They don't have food to feed their families because they're working two jobs. So it's not a I don't love my kids. It's they're doing everything that they can, but they're not making it. And if the community can be the community around them, there is going to be less kids taken away for things like food issues or leaving kids at home that are too young because they can't afford daycare or a babysitter and they have to work two jobs so if we can be the safe community around them that's going to change the system in a huge way
1: how can we identify foster youth who might need help
2: that is the hardest question ever because we don't identify ourselves as foster youth Mm. because we're told to stay quiet we're told not to be a problem were pulled aside by some people and said, like, don't utter a word. Don't cause a ruckus. Don't fail a quiz. If you do these things, we'll move you. My caseworker told me that repeatedly. Like, if you cause a scene, if you are late or tardy to a class by even a minute, I will move you foster homes. So we stay under the radar and we stay quiet. I actually know someone who shared his story with me, and he was valedictorian in high school while dealing with the foster care system. Nobody knew. And it Mm. was like, how did you pass your classes? Because I could not. He's like, I'm just, he's really good at passing classes. So you might not be able to identify a foster youth in your community, but what you could do is just live your life as as someone who's just watching for anyone who might need help. Mm. And just say, you know what? I'm not gonna sit here and say, hey, excuse me, are you foster care? (laughs) Like, (laughs) that would be weird. It would be like, it's just weird conversation to be like, hey, are you poor? Like, why would you ask that? But what I could do is just say, oh, okay, there are these people that I get to see in my life that are you know, either around my kids or my family or maybe I'm a teacher or something like that and these are the people in my room for a reason and I'm gonna protect them. One of my high school teachers, he used to do it this way and I was like, I asked him years later, I was like, hey, did you know? And he's like, I pretended that every single one of my students in the classroom needed something. So he would always bring like extra pizzas and extra chips, just class and just be like, oh, I brought too much. But he would never say, like, excuse me, poor children or foster care kids, come eat. Like, he'd never do that because that's embarrassing. No one would stand up. But he's just like, hey, guys, I went to Costco and got too many chips. Anybody want some? And, of course, everyone who wanted some would go get them. But he never made it a thing to be like, you have to identify to me what Mm. you are. He's just like, I'm going to treat you with love and care because you're in my room. And if we have the opportunity of being with coworkers, maybe they're not young adults or – They're not struggling, but they're just with coworkers and say like, hey, I'm just, you seem to have a, like, you're having a bad day. What can I do to help make that not a bad day anymore? Mm. That goes above and beyond because maybe that's the parent who's struggling financially to provide for their kids. Maybe they have had CPS called on them. I don't know. But we can stop putting a label on it and be like, well, that's the only time I'm going to help and move it to if you're in my community, I'm going to try to be here for you. I'm going to try to support you to the best of my ability. And it might not be financially. Maybe it's just a listening ear. But then when we identify, taking in the whole conversation, because sometimes there were times where I would, years after foster care happened and dealing with the emotions as a young adult, I would say, here's what I experienced. And people would say like, well, did you report it? And it's like yeah and they're like well I have to report it because you're telling me this for the first time and that's where mandated reporting can get sticky and I know people have to do what they have to do sometimes and you have to report it sometimes but it was such a hard thing to say well I want to be open now so then I'd started going well are you a mandated reporter and if they're like yeah I'm like oh never mind I forgot what I wanted to say because it wasn't worth the risk of being vulnerable with someone who would go and have to do that so just being careful with those conversations as well. And the community could also like the last thing I would probably say on this is like, be careful when someone tells you their story because sometimes we try to help and be like, let me put you in contact with this person or that person or like, let's get your story out there. And they're one, we're not ready or in a season of being ready to share that. But there are times when there are other people out there who do prey on people. And be like, oh, come share your story for free. And I've talked to so many foster youth who have said, yeah, I went to an event and I, I was the keynote speaker and I shared my story and they had this big fundraising event and I had a little bit to eat or nothing to eat at this event. And I went home and either broke down driving home because I didn't get gas or I went home to an empty fridge and struggling financially because they never paid me for that event. So if you do bring mm-hmm. foster youth in to share their stories or you do ask them to be someone who's a keynote speaker, pay them. So that way they're getting paid for this event and try to do it at like a substantial amount, not just like $100 or $200 because that doesn't last very long, especially with gas prices. But mm-hmm. it they should not go home hungry. And then we celebrate the win that we just did as an organization mm-hmm. or a person who's like, oh, my God, look, my episode got... 500 people on it and no one is looking at them like especially when they're in their early 20s to say like you might not have food at home you might be starving today like I don't know where you're at so being able to say you know what I'm going to protect who shares their story with me and make sure that if they are sharing their story they know they should be putting down like hey this is my fee because they are an expert in this field and to say well I'm going to have you speak for free so we can bring awareness we're just continuing a really ugly cycle where we're asking people to share their story and asking them to, to re-traumatize themselves in sharing their story and then to go home to an empty fridge to be like, but don't worry, I did good today, when they're struggling. That's not great. You come across as
1: someone who is very stable and, very, and has their life together. Do you always feel
2: like that's the case? Oh, no. (laughs) I'm like, oh, how cute. I've done a lot of counseling, (laughs) but also, too, like I studied in my bachelor's and my PhD psychology. And I was like, oh, my God, that's my life. Like they found a case study on my family. Very awkward conversation with my professor when I was like, where did you get this story? Is this my family? And she's like, what are you talking about? But there has been years of people like pouring into me to be like hey girl like this is the direction to to heal I've talked to a lot of people who are still hurting from things that they've gone through and they're in their 60s or 70s and they've told me like heal from it try to go to counseling find something for you that works and for me faith and and counseling have gone hand in hand for me but there are so many times that I'm like man I'm not there yet man I've I've failed again or or whatever but I come back to that conversation I had with my professor about the choices and when I can say, okay, what did Professor Clark say? He said, you might not be happy with where you're at, but are you happy with your choices? And I've had to ask myself, like, are you happy with your choices? Heck yes, I am. Perfect. Then keep going. But there is also a lot of different podcasters out there who've been really talking about changing the definition of success and that has helped me because we look at success and we think money and cars and houses and trips and things like that but we can't really find happiness in things Surprise, surprise if anybody did not know. We can't find happiness in money and things, but we can find happiness through relationships that we're in through finding healing of what we've gone through, not into a way of like excusing that behavior and saying, well, I just have to continue living and hurt, but more of like that doesn't hold me down. And I can share that without knowing I'm in a spiral into depression later because I shared it. And that's I was there 10, 15 years ago. But because of people, they're just like, you can tell your story and find healing in that. But do it from a place of when you're healed enough that you're not spiraling down to depression because it's making you think of all the times you were hurt and. Then look at your successes and redefine them. And so it's like, I do own a home, which is something I never thought I was going to do. I didn't have that on my radar. Having stability because of my husband and like who he is and how he helps encourage me. Because without him, like he's been the only stable relationship I've had my entire life. (laughs) And we've been together six and a half years. And that I'm like, wow, this is really cool. (laughs) But before that, I was like, three months, you're out. Like, I'm like, you made me mad, I could cut you. I could I could literally a friend told me this in high school. He said, "Girl, I can't read you, but you can cut people off like like you breathe, just in a split second. And I was like, "Ooh, that's probably not not a good quality." <laughs> but it it like it hit in a weird way where I was like, "Oh, that's not a good thing to be able just to cut someone off as if I'm breathing, like the same just not even thinking about it." And I've had to work through that of the why do I put people at such a distance. But being able to have like looking back now and be like, wow, I've had a a successful relationship with my husband and I'm not just cutting him off because, you know, he's talking to me or being rude to him or rude to my friends, and then having my daughter who's over a year old now, it's like makes me excited to be like, Oh my gosh, I get to show her things versus fearful of being like, Oh, I'm gonna mess her up. Mm -hmm. Because ten years ago I was like, if I have kids, man. That counseling bill is going to suck. But now I'm like, OK, yeah, she's going to have to go through counseling because that's life sometimes. We're going to have to learn how to handle our emotions. But not. I'm not going to actively send her to that because I'm telling her she can't do something. I'm not actively sending, sending her to counseling or destroying her life because I say no for what's good for her. I've learned over time through other people, watching other people and being like, oh, that's how you can be a good parent. That's how you can be someone who's successful. You can redefine your success. Oh, that's how you can be healthy and happy, not just physically, but emotionally. And you sometimes you gravitate toward those people, and sometimes they make you mad because they're in a place you can't understand yet. But I feel like on this side of things, I'm like, ooh, this is nice. <laughs> it's nice to be on this side, but there are so many times I've looked back and I'm like... Oh, I'm not stable. Like, especially emotionally, we are physically. I I went off very, very far in a very short period of time. Started my bachelor's program in a community college at two, in 2009. Finished my PhD in 2021. My bachelor's took eight years. My master's took a year. My PhD did. I uh, was able to do it in three and a half years. PhD programs usually take about five to seven years. So I did it in three and a half. Wow. It wasn't a, until 2022. I graduated in 2021. In 2022, I was finally like, oh, I did that. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, I did that. Oh, okay. Now it's sinking in. Going into a new year, that's different because now it's emotionally. I'm like, oh, I have to still deal with emotions from 10 years ago sometimes. Mm. Oh, okay, That's a slower process. Mm -hmm. And my therapist said that. And she goes, girl, your brain moves so fast. But your emotions need to be able to catch up and process and heal from what what's happened in the last 10 years. And I was like, oh, I haven't dealt with that. (laughs) Like, but but I know from 10 years ago, the way I respond even in the last year is very different than what it was 15, 20 years ago. And I'm like, oh, I can do this. Okay, like I can deal with the hard emotions and not push it off and push it under a rug. I can actually slowly work through it now that the physical is stable. Because I feel like it's so hard to be like, your life's falling apart. You're not physically stable. Now deal with your emotions. Yeah. It's like, you're just maintaining everything at that point. So when you get stable, if you have been in an unstable physical position, when you're physically stable, you can start working on the emotion and working on the, the thought process. But there are so many times that I've, I have to remind myself, like, but look how far you've come, regardless. You still, yeah, you probably have a long way to go you have a lot of cool things you're going to do but also too a lot of hurdles emotionally that you have to slowly work through but you're allowed to be in that kind of thought process too and and working through that consistently but stability I think I think sometimes I'm like well physically I'm stable emotionally I'm not so sure but it's the process of being okay with working through that that I think that has given me freedom from fearing If someone's like, oh, you have a thought like that, or oh, you feel that way sometimes, or oh, you made a mistake financially, it's like, yeah, everyone does, but I don't need to beat myself up because I'm not, like, air quotes where I want to be yet, because we're always going to be, hopefully, always working on who we are internally to better ourselves for ourselves, not for other people.
1: What would you say to someone who's going through the foster care system right now?
2: (sighs) Hold on, because I know there's so much more to their story. Then we even realize and like I like don't want to cry, but it's like I could just imagine like this person sitting in a car <laughs> on their way to school and being like, I don't know what to do anymore. And I'm done. And I just like, hold on, because I don't know what your life looks like. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your case is or what people have told you or what people have said about you. But I know that you're here for a reason and you're here on purpose and that purpose may have been shifted a little bit and out of like your focus can't be on that right now because you're in survival, but just keep holding on because it's worth it if you can hold on and get through this and then keep walking because there's people out there who do care, but they are you might not be in a, a village who is very good about showing that yet. How are your siblings doing now? They're doing okay. We're all processing in our own time, Mm -hmm. but we're all alive. (laughs) I think everyone handles it differently. And I know it's hard. I try to be very open and my siblings have been like, yeah, okay, whatever. But it's been neat to watch them kind of find their own routes and their own processes with stuff. And sometimes they'll share a story and be like, this is what it was. I'm like, no, but that's not what went down. And there's just different things that we remember sometimes, and, and I have a lot of f- files that I have looked through that I'm like, oh, I thought it was that way, and it's not. It was this, but they're doing good, and I feel there's just a lot of healing that tends to have to happen in our own, own lives, because a lot of them are also younger than I am, so it's like I'm on this end, I'm 34, and a lot of them are still in their 20s, so it's kind of like just reminding them like, hey, I felt the same way at 22, 23, 28. 34 <laughs> still feel that way but just being able to look at them and say like oh you get to choose your route now it's very neat But it's a freak out moment when you're in it where you're like, I have to choose my route for life. Like, I have to figure this out. And I'm like, oh, you poor thing. And sometimes I'm like, I don't miss that. (laughs) Like, I don't like I don't miss that at all. Like people tell me about being in school and I'm like, nope, I'm good. (laughs) Like, I'm so sorry you're going through that. Because when you're on the other side of like school or emotions, you're just like, man, that was a rough. I'm here for you. But man, that was a rough period for me, too. And then I don't miss that feeling or that thing that you're going through. But I'll be here for you. But I think they're they're doing good. Were you the oldest of your siblings? I'm the fourth oldest
1: of 11. And if someone is listening to this interview today, what is the one key thought that you want them to take away from this?
2: No, there's a lot of thoughts. But I think the main one is that we all have a part to play in helping someone. And it doesn't have to be one particular thing you could be the foster parent or just the the friend who shows up with that friend to be like hey i'm going to fight for you we can also just be the person who shares a post to be like hey there's other people out here like you that's there's we all have a part to play and i think sometimes we've forget that and we don't think we have a purpose in life and we're like well what am I supposed to do I can't take kids in I can't foster or I can't financially give sometimes just being the ear to listen to someone who's having a hard day makes the world of a difference and know that like we're where we're at on a for a reason like we are all in our jobs in our lives for a reason with a purpose and sometimes it's to be the person who just listens and then sometimes it's to be the person who takes the action and be like okay I can be a foster parent or I could be a teacher who is going to bring extra chips to school and it's not going to really hurt hopefully (laughs) hopefully Mm -hmm. not hurt financially Um, but but also just being the person who's like you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna sit here with you and just let you process
1: I've been speaking with Dr. Denisha Keating, author of From Foster to PhD, Letters from a Suitcase. How would you like us to get your book?
2: It is on Amazon. They self-published it, so you cannot get it in stores. Didn't know that that was a whole thing, but you can get it on Amazon. And there's a couple options when you look through. You could find one that's like new or used, but there's like a $12.99 one. And then there's like the hardcover book, which is a little bit more. I think it's like 22 or 23 and any last thoughts for us? Yes. So be on the lookout. Uh, you can actually go to my website, denishakeating.com, and you can subscribe to the newsletter for the documentary that's coming out. We are calling it 33 Roofs to signify how many roofs I lived under. But we are going to be highlighting what foster youth can uh, go through when it comes to educational barriers and physical barriers, such as homelessness, and how we can be the change to help them. So it'll be coming. We're working on it hard and should be mm-hmm. here in April.
1: That should be a- Amazing to watch. Thank you so much for coming in today and sharing this incredible and
2: inspiring story. Thank you for having me. This was fun. (laughs) This was good. Thank you.
0: (laughs) T Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours